I'm Chris Connor, and this is CC Life Science, a podcast where I talk to life science leaders about AI, new business models, sometimes even the science, and anything else that has me curious. If you haven't heard the recent episodes on de-extincting the woolly mammoth or manufacturing drugs in space, check those out right after you listen to this one. And make sure you're subscribed to my Substack. It's cclifescience.substack.com. I've got an interesting story today. We're talking about the difficulties of developing diagnostics, which was a little surprising to me. Let's jump into it. Hannah Mamushka is the CEO at Alva 10. Alva 10's mission is to create an economic ecosystem to pull technology into healthcare, align incentives, and optimize for patient outcomes and payer economics. We're going to talk later about how they do that. But first of all, Hannah, welcome to CC Life Science. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Um, so I found you on LinkedIn, and I think you wrote a post, or somehow I discovered that you enlightened me that it's difficult to develop new diagnostics for reasons around funding. So talk about the potential value of more and better diagnostics, which I had just sort of assumed lots of people work on and they just happen and the challenge of funding their development. Yeah, absolutely. I think we got a little glimpse into this actually during the COVID pandemic right at the beginning, you know, right at the beginning, remember when COVID started and nobody could get, a diagnostic test and you just got told to, you know, stay in your house if you had any symptoms at all, don't go near anyone, you know, don't go out there for two weeks. And that wasn't because we didn't know how to develop COVID PCR tests or COVID antigen tests. Those are pretty easy uh, to develop. It's because we actually didn't have a, a framework to pay for them. Medicare didn't set pricing um, for the original COVID test until June of 2020. Um, they set preliminary pricing in May, which was actually below the cost of goods of the test. So nobody wanted to develop those tests. And then they reset them in June and commercial payers generally follow what Medicare does. And so for the first five months of the pandemic, you couldn't get, there was no payment for, for doing a COVID diagnostic, which, you know, I think in healthcare, sometimes we don't like to think about payment and healthcare. But the fact is, is that if the lab can't get paid for something, they're not likely to do it. And patients aren't really excited about just paying out of pocket for something that they don't understand. And so payment is actually really the key uh, to why we have or don't have diagnostic tools. Our healthcare system is really well set up to pay for drugs and hospitals and procedures and physician visits, but on the diagnostic side, we, we kind of fall apart. We don't really have a framework to figure out how we pay for diagnostics when they come to the market, and so often we don't. Yeah, so, I mean, and I come from this from having talked to lots of people about, um, you know, companion diagnostics that are required for precision medicine applications. But there are all kinds of other diagnostics that might be developed. What keeps um, people from funding these things? What's the risk to them of developing a diagnostic which you would think would make all the downstream things, clinical trials and success of those drugs, better? What, what's, what's the holdup? Yeah, that is an excellent question. So I just want to frame the conversation. So when I talk about diagnostics, I'm talking about both diagnostic tools that we use to 
have a primary diagnosis of disease to figure out, you know, what disease, what, what your symptoms indicate the disease that you have and maybe what type of disease. So if it's cancer, if it's MS, or if it's, you know, some other condition. Um, we also use the term diagnostics to figure out what you're at risk of. So figuring out, there are diagnostic tools to figure out if you're at risk for heart disease or if you're at risk for cancer or if you're at risk for Alzheimer's. Then there are diagnostic tools that we can use to figure out if you are likely to have a severe adverse event from a drug or a procedure so that you can have an alternative treatment path so you can avoid that severe adverse event. Um, then there are diagnostic tools to figure out if you're likely to respond to a drug or a therapy um, and which drug is most likely to benefit you, which is, I think, where you are in the companion diagnostics. And then we also have drugs, which are, excuse me, diagnostics, which are really monitoring diagnostics, which figure out, you know, is the drug working for you? Is your disease progressing? Has it, you know, if it's, if it's something um, that cycles, is it something that's coming back? All of those fall into this kind of broad bucket of diagnostics. And in the U.S., we have two regulatory paths um, that have their both their pros and their cons. We have the FDA path, which most people are familiar with because drugs go through FDA. Um, diagnostics can also go through FDA, where they are determined to be appropriately sensitive and specific, which essentially means how accurate they are in doing what they say they're going to do. And you can go, you can take a diagnostic and go through FDA approval. Um, that confers no payment, however. So you can take a diagnostic test all the way through the FDA and get it approved. And no, neither Medicare nor commercial insurance will pay for that diagnostic because they have a different set of criteria that they use to determine payment. Uh, and they have a different perspective around how a diagnostic is used and what you need to prove. The other regulatory pathway that we have in the U.S. is, is called, um, through what's called our CLIA system, which is um, how we develop laboratory developed tests, um, which are tests that are run in a single lab. It can be a, it can be a big lab, like a Quest lab or, or a LabCorp. Or it can be in a small, you know, single-site laboratory. Um, and that is a test that doesn't go through FDA, but also has to go through a fairly high bar of proving to Medicare and other, and other aid government agencies that it is doing what it says it does in terms of accuracy. However, that also doesn't confer payment. In order to get payment, you have to go um, through the American Medical Association to get a code, which is essentially a numeric or alphanumeric set of numbers and numbers and letters that identify your test. And then you have to go and apply for what's called coverage, which is determining who's going to pay for your test. And there is no standard of how much evidence, um, what kind of data you have to present with your test in order to get it covered. It's, it's kind of just submit it and it's kind of a crapshoot. Um, which ultimately means that it usually takes, on average, diagnostic tests about seven years before they are paid for. And most companies can't survive for seven years without getting paid, as most companies can't survive. I mean, it's not limited to healthcare. You know, right. if you don't get paid for seven years, you probably don't exist anymore. Yeah, so you opened my eyes there to, um, yeah, as you described it, the whole bucket of diagnostics. I mean, broadly, any kind of test that tells you what you have, what's happening, is this working, et, et cetera. Um, and, 
yeah, no one, no one's going to do a test that they're not going to get paid for. I mean, the people that work in that lab have to feed their kids. Exactly. So on, right? exactly. And um, so that that is a challenge. Um, and you know, I want to take the long term view. Like, if we had this, as I said, wouldn't some other downstream things go better? So. Wouldn't it be better for drug makers to start with, for example, on a clinical trial with people that they knew knew a little bit more about? They could segment maybe different parts of the population to run their tests and increase their success rates. That would be ideal. Um, the challenge is, is that all of the pharma companies, and I'm not anti-pharma, it's going to sound a little bit like I am, but this is just the reality of their business. I mean, they're all large publicly traded companies um, who have large goals from a financial perspective. And when you talk about using a diagnostic upfront uh, to segment the population early, you're shrinking the market before they even get to market. And when you're talking about, you know, if you take the, the example I talk about the most um, in this space is Alzheimer's disease because we don't actually have diagnostic tests that diagnose Alzheimer's disease. You know, we, we kind of put Alzheimer's in this big bucket like it's one disease. But the reality is people who have memory complaint problems may have a whole variety of underlying pathologies that are causing their symptoms of of memory complaint, of forgetfulness, of, of you know, the, the signs of dementia. And it can be something like um, combinations of medications that aren't working. It can be from dehydration. It can be related to diabetes. Uh, within the Alzheimer's family, there is a genetic version of, of Alzheimer's disease that tends to be early onset. There are later versions. There, there are a whole lot of different diseases and disease pathologies that fit within this bucket of, quote, Alzheimer's. If we don't, you know, and, and so when we think about drug development, drug development is, at this point, drug development is incredible. Drug development, and it has been for, you know, 30 or 40 years, all, every drug that is being developed is a rationally designed therapy, which specifically looks at the pathways of the pathologies in disease and is very intentional and very specific. But then when we get out into the patient population, we don't bother to look at those pathways or find those pathways in patients. So if, you, if you're developing a drug that really works very well in a very specific diagnosis and a very specific pathway within only certain patients who have that diagnosis, but then you don't bother to find those patients when you're in the market, we have this massive mismatch because either... For pharma, you're either immediately shrinking a big market before they even before they even get to the market, or we do what we're currently doing, which is wasting a huge amount of money and patient time by giving drugs to patients that are ineffective because they don't actually have either that diagnosis or the pathway that's being targeted. And that's what we need to fix um, with better diagnostics. Right. So... Um, I think most people who listen to this podcast know that my other podcast is about marketing. And I'm thinking, when when will the investors catch on? Like, this is a possibility. <laughs> like, yeah. you're selling us on this giant market size, but that's, you know, it's possible that we could 
reduce our costs in terms of testing and raise our success rate on the other end, which I would think would be increase your value. And maybe that's your whole job. Well, yeah. I mean, part of the problem is that we don't pay in the U.S. healthcare system – we don't, we don't actually, we talk a lot about value, but we don't actually pay for value. We don't have a healthcare system that pays for value. So that's part of our problem. Because if the pharma companies could actually get paid based on their response rates within a population, and they would get more for patients having a better outcome, this would be a very different conversation. Because right now, there's no difference between a drug that you give to a patient that doesn't work at all and a drug that you give to a patient that completely, you know, alleviates all of their symptoms. We don't have a value system that pays, you know, differentially for that. And so we get, you know, the current response rate for drugs approved by the US FDA is about 36%, which means that you can just wipe out two-thirds of what we spend on prescription drugs. Doesn't work. The other problem, though, is that what's not captured in that sort of simple calculation is the cost of patients whose diseases are progressing. And, you know, they're on medication that's supposed to prevent a heart attack, but, you know, their genetics say that this drug isn't going to work. The heart attack is not prevented. They have a heart attack. Um, They're on medication for their, their rheumatoid arthritis that is supposed to prevent bone deterioration. Uh, It doesn't work. They need to have their hip replaced. There are so many downstream costs that are actually far more significant than the money we waste on drugs that don't work um, that all add together that create a lot of the costs and a lot of the problems that we have in our healthcare system that we could be solving if we paid for diagnostics. Um, But the challenge is really in getting payers, so commercial insurance, Medicare, um, to an extent, large employers to really understand the value that diagnostics can bring um, and pay for them at a level that allows them to get into the market and actually make it to patients. Um, you know, as a, I'm a scientist by training, and I, I still kind of hate talking about the money part because I think, like, scientists always think, mm-hmm. well, if the data is obvious and it's so clear and it's so clearly beneficial to the patient, then obviously we'll, that's what we'll do. And it just kind of ignores, you know, the reality of how hard it is to get things into our healthcare system. Right. There's a few things in there that jump out at me. One, the amount of data that would be needed to sort of understand where a therapy would work. And then the other thing that crossed my mind on the other side is how do we pay as a value-based system for the heart attack that didn't happen yet, <laughs> right? Right. But except that goes to like if we had overall data that would say this drug is not appropriate for this population, we're going to save some. And then we can put that to if we know there is a drug and a test somewhere else. Am I thinking about it right? It's just better allocation of resources if we had it enough is. data. It is a better allocation of resources. And in some of these, we really do have enough data. I mean, some of these, there are a lot of these where the FDA actually has a either a warning label on drugs saying, do not prescribe this drug without running this diagnostic. 
or a recommendation, at least, that says that you shouldn't be prescribing this drug without this information. Um, so the, the data exists and the data has been there. In some cases, the data has been there for decades. You know, even on the oncology side, where we have a lot of great examples of the co-development of diagnostics with drugs, where there's been an acknowledgement that, you know, cancer is a serious disease, although I think some other diseases are serious too, um, but cancer is a serious disease where patients don't have the time essentially to waste on on therapies that aren't effective. So we should use biomarkers more to get patients on the right drug first. When you actually look at what happens, even in situations where we have a diagnostic on the label of the drug, there's a massive disconnect. And, you know, data has shown that depending on the disease, it only, it's only happening about a third of the time. Wow. Only about a third of the time are we actually testing patients for the biomarker and then putting them on the drug that matches that biomarker. And it's not because the evidence isn't there. What, so, so what's the reason that clinicians apparently are the people at that junction? Of I mean, I think decisions? I think there's a lot of uh, I think there's still a lot of lack of understanding. Um, and I think for I think for some clinicians, um, we're going through a really challenging time where medicine is evolving from being more of an art you know, where the experience of the physician really determined how a patient was going to be treated. And, you know, patients sought out physicians who had a lot of experience in their disease and, of course, still do. But medicine is really transitioning to being much more of a data-driven science where, you know, the experience of a physician is obviously important, but knowing if that patient has um, certain genetic, genomic, you know, diagnostic characteristics is arguably more important or as important in making their treatment decisions. And I think, I think for some that is, a, that's a very difficult transition. Yeah. And that had got me thinking about a whole other episode about what the profile of future medical students should look like in terms of curiosity and what, you know, skills in terms of interacting with a patient on one side and, you know, is that a right brain thing and a left brain thing for, you know, understanding the data and this is what we're this is how I'm gonna make my decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned cancer it used to be kind of one disease. Now it's who knows how many, but um, and Alzheimer you sort of hinted at is probably similar, but we don't necessarily think about it that way yet. Um, I mean, I guess make that comparison. Where are we going? What's the next step? Help me yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, cancer, so cancer is a disease um, where cells start growing out of control in our body. You know, you, normally our immune system and other regulatory mechanisms keep cellular growth in check. And cancer happens when those cells evade some mechanism and they start growing out of control. And cancer becomes deadly when the out-of-control growth starts inhibiting a major organ or system. You know, a, a cancer in your breast isn't actually what kills you. It's when it spreads to your brain or to your lungs or to your liver. Those are the things that kill you. So when we think about cancer, you know, when we think about cancer treatment, early cancer treatments, um, not surgery, but, but chemical, involved what we consider to be cytotoxic 
drugs where essentially we gave patients poison, we still do this, gave patients poison and hoped that because cancer cells tend to divide faster than normal cells, that they would suck up the poison and that the cancer would die before you. And it worked somewhat. It works somewhat still. It works better in some cancers than others. Um, It wasn't particularly targeted in a way that we understood, um, but that was the best that we had. And then when we started really, you know, kind of cutting out cancer, um, surgically removing cancer, and we started looking at it under the microscope, we really understood that different cancers have different pathologies, um, and they grow at different rates. And we started looking at the different morphologies of the cells and understanding that some cells and some structures within those tumors indicated that they were growing faster, which meant we had to think about treating them differently. Um, And that has really evolved To the point where now when you get a diagnosis of cancer, you would never just be diagnosed with the word cancer. You would be diagnosed um, with the location of the primary cancer. So say it was was breast cancer. You would be diagnosed with the type of pathology. So what type of cells it is. It would be diagnosed on a DNA, on a genetic level, um, as well as on a genomic level, which informs how fast the tumor is growing, what type of therapies are most likely to be effective, um, where the tumor has spread to, how many organs, how close those are, how far those are, what the communication of that tumor is. When we, when we think about treating cancer patients now, we, we really, in the U.S. especially, um, we wouldn't treat, we should not be treating any patients without all of that information. That is absolutely standard of care. We, we were able to do that earlier in cancer than in other diseases because of the fact that you, you could get easier access to sample. You know, when you, have, when you have a solid tumor, you generally have something that you can cut out and bring into the lab and cut it apart and take a look at it. Technologies 30, 40, 50 years ago were not as advanced to be able to make the same inquiries of diseases like Alzheimer's disease or multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis. But now we have evolved And now we actually do have that ability um, to look at information from those diseases in the same way we were looking at cancer 30, 40, 50 years ago, where we can look at the morphological differences in the cells. We can look at the signaling that the the disease, um, how it impacts our body, how it impacts our immune system. We can look at the different pathways that make a disease, uh, you know, give you more symptoms or help your symptoms reside, we can look at all that. But for the most part, the only disease that we really do that on a regular basis is still cancer. And it's not that I don't, I've spent most of my career in cancer, most of my career in both cancer drug development and cancer diagnostic development. And it's not that I don't think cancer is serious. I do. Um, But I think that there are other, I think there are a lot of other diseases where patients also suffer significantly and could really benefit from better diagnostic tools to figure out what diseases they're at risk for, um, how to catch them early, and how to get them on the right therapy from, from the beginning. The average autoimmune patient spends two years cycling through ineffective drugs before they get on a drug that works for them. In 2023, that's ridiculous. We do not need to do that anymore. Yeah, that's eye-opening in itself. Just sort of the history of medicine. As I never really thought, like, 
cancer, one, one of the scarier things for whatever reason. Yep. And two, we can cut them out and look at them, whereas all these other things are, shall we say, more diffuse or in your brain, and we're not going to touch it, right? So. <laughs> Yeah, so the we, have, we need other kinds of <laughs> other kinds of visualization techniques to figure out what's going on and classify those diseases and and make those choices. So yeah, that's interesting. But you're right. 2023, there's a lot going on. We could probably do better. So let's finish up with explaining what what you do at Alva 10 and how you hope to um, make it more reasonable to invest in developing diagnostics that will assist with all these challenges and get, you know, make investors happy and make entrepreneurs happy and so on. Yeah, I uh, if you had told me 20 years ago in my career that I'd be doing this, I don't think I would have believed you. You know, I um I was a lab, I am a lab nerd. Um I'm a molecular biologist. I started my career at National Cancer Institute. I worked in drug development. I worked in diagnostics for 20 years. But, you know, in the lab and in the diagnostic space, what the roadblock that I kept running into and over and over again was was reimbursement, was payment. Who's going to pay for it? How are they going to pay for it? And, you know, when I first started sort of paying attention to that, I just kind of, I didn't really want to hear it because, you know, scientists don't really want to think about who's going to pay for something. You know, we all have this idealized, you know, concept that if we work hard enough and we show that the data is good and we show that it impacts patients and we show that it improves patient outcomes, then therefore it should be obvious to everyone and everyone should immediately drop what they were doing before and use it. And obviously that's not true. I mean, obviously that's not true to an extent, but it's actually not true at all. Um, the, the U.S. healthcare system is really driven, is really like a bank. It's, it's completely financially motivated. And, you know, once you understand that, that's fine. And it really allows you to sort of start reframing how you think about tools that need to get into the healthcare system to impact patient outcomes. And so what we do at Alma 10 is we look at the clinical problems and we translate them into economics because economics are what commercial payers care about. Um, they're what employers care about. Um, and they're to an extent what Medicare cares about. Medicare cares about a few other things, but financial implications certainly get their attention as well. When we, when we translate the clinical problems into economic problems, it allows us to speak in the currency that healthcare decision makers actually talk in. Um, so when we think about, you know, how do we get this diagnostic, how do we get a tool that is going to, you know, dramatically change how patients are treated, we take all of those clinical changes and we, we translate them all into numbers and then figure out how the payers are going to see it, how much they're going to value it, and then we show it to them strictly from an economic perspective first. And when we show them the economic perspective, the first thing they ask for is, oh, well, you know, we need to see the clinical evidence, which we immediately give to them. But I can tell you from a lot of experience trying to go the other way and showing them clinical evidence and then wanting to talk about economics, I mean, I essentially got nowhere. Um, and over the past seven years, what we've been doing at Alva 10, we have gone so much faster and brought so many more impactful diagnostic tools to the market 
it really shows that for good or for bad, you know, figuring out the economics alongside of the clinical impact is the is the highway in the U.S. healthcare system. That's just an interesting psychological thing about, I mean, maybe some people would call it anchoring, right? I think that might be the term, but, you know, you come with the data first, then it's hard to sell the economic part. But if you lead with the economics, of course, they're going to ask about the data, and then it would seem to be an easier thing. Um, I have to, I don't know any, I mean, I think I told you before. <laughs> When we talk about the U.S. healthcare system, my eyes roll back in my head. It's it's so overwhelming, and I don't know anything about it or other countries, you know, which may be better or worse. You know, I hear anecdotes. Are there other models that, like, in other countries where this isn't the problem, or is this kind of universal? I mean, I'm just asking if we can learn from some success somewhere else. So there are definitely healthcare systems. Um, that have some good points. I think I think Israel has a really good healthcare system. Um, I think some European countries do, but you know, a lot of the problem is that everyone everyone wants to start their innovations in the U.S. because we're the biggest healthcare market, mm, right? And so we kind of model our bad behavior for the rest of the world. Um, you know, the rest of the world often doesn't have access to the drugs that we have approved. I mean, the US FDA has approved drugs with incredibly low response rates that would not get approved elsewhere. But FDA approves um, based solely on safety and not necessarily on efficacy and definitely not on cost effectiveness. And so the US FDA will approve drugs that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, which may not have any clinical benefit, um, except to a few patients. In other countries, uh, they want to see that benefit and they want to find out who those patients are. But because the U.S. has allowed those drugs to get approved, none of the companies want to develop diagnostics to restrict because then then the thought is they will be restricted in the U.S. too and that will crash the market. So we have, um, there are certainly other healthcare systems that have done a better job of setting up screening, of setting up data aggregation. I mean, what the UK has done, what Sweden has done, what a lot of other countries have done in order to look forward and inform future healthcare decision making, we don't do in the US because we don't, we don't have an aggregated healthcare system that way. Um, but unfortunately we, uh, we lead the way, not in the good way, um, in the diagnostic space. Right. No, that's helpful to just put perspective on it, whether, you know, the pros and cons of any different system, we're the 800 pound gorilla or the gatekeeper for what everybody else is going to do. And so even if they wanted to do it right, it doesn't make sense for them. Right. In some way. Right. Awesome. Well, Hannah Mamushka, this has been really enlightening for me. I'm pretty sure it's going to be an eye-opener for a lot of folks. Hopefully, um, you know, they will check out. I'll put a link to your LinkedIn and, of course, your website uh, in the show notes for this episode. And thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Chris. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this kind of content, please share it with your colleagues. It is much appreciated. I'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode. Bye-bye.